Uh, Come Holy Spirit and take all the shadows away that we might see light. We ask this in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I remember only one dream from my early childhood. I was four years old, but the dream was uh, so alarming and felt so real that I remember the details as if the dream occurred yesterday. You should know that, like most children, I was terrified of the dark. I was scared, witless of the dark. And to remedy the situation so that I wouldn't wake my parents up every five minutes, they gave me a Berenstain Bear nightlight. Somehow found that very consoling. It worked. Uh, But my dream involved... uh, the theme of darkness. I, I, I dreamt that I, I was in my house uh, on West Lancaster Road in Harmony, Pennsylvania, which is in the middle of the country. Your nearest neighbors are, you know, uh, 300 yards away. And, uh, and the, the evenings there are very quiet and uh, very calm. You can't hear any traffic. And I remember in my dream waking at midnight in the starless sky, and waking to the noise of this eerie chanting that was going on outside. And I looked out my window. It was right above the garage. And the garage was open, and there were these uh, shrouded men wearing these gray kind of cloaks, and they were taking all of the possessions out of the house. They were stealing all my toys, and they were taking all of uh, our furniture, and then they, they were taking the lamps out of the house. And the last one um, had, had in his grip my Berenstain Bear nightlight. So I was terrified, and I ran over to the light switch, but it wouldn't work. And I screamed for my parents, but they never heard. And that was, that was the dream. I've never been able to shake it. But I think that the feeling I had at the end of it was something like, I don't know if the sun will ever rise again. The iconography of the night, of uh, darkness, and all that it means, has stayed within our human imagination. We tend to associate the night with unpredictability, chaos, hiddenness, hopelessness, and even death. And uh, this is, of course, uh, made prevalent in all of these ridiculous movies and shows about vampires, because the scary people always come out at night, not you know, at noon at a Wendy's. Uh, they come out at night. And this is, tr- this is why, you know, um, Elie Wiesel wrote his book about the Holocaust and called it Night. This is why Conrad writes a book called The Heart of Darkness. This is why um, Dylan Thomas could write a poem uh, without defining his terms, saying, do not go gentle into that good night. That there's a sense in which the darkness means something more than just the earth turning away from the sun. There's a cosmic, uh, there are cosmic associations. And uh, um, it is into this world of night, into this world of darkness, often starless and bleak, that Jesus comes to us. Jesus comes to us in this place, and he says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I am going to speak tonight about the illuminating nature of Jesus Christ and the divergent reactions that his light causes. 
uh, we have to get steadied in illumination. Uh, because in the ancient world, they understood the cosmology of light and darkness in a particular mythic way, especially the culture surrounding Judaism. Uh, they really believed, many of them, that <clears throat> light and darkness were cosmic forces that always had to be balanced or even. It was sort of like the force on Star Wars, you know. Uh, and so the good will never overpower the bad, and the bad will never overpower the good. And it's yin and yang, right? There's a little bad in the good and a little good in the bad, and world without end, amen. But the Bible doesn't see life that way. It portrays what could be called um, an uneven dualism, an uneven dualism between the light and the dark. It portrays darkness as the default position of the world. The screen really is that dark, but... The Bible also says that light or goodness, beauty, righteousness, wholeness uh, invades the dark and then takes it over and wins. But, but right now, the light is like constellations that appear on the, the evening canvas. And those constellations eventually become so bright that they overtake everything. That's the Bible's dualism of light and dark. And to really understand this in a more profoundly textual way. We have to do a little Bible lesson on what it means uh, to have God's light in the world, the constellation of, of the great Father. What does that even mean? Well, uh, we can see light in our origins right from the start. I mean, you know this. It's Genesis 1. The first words God speaks that are recorded in Holy Scripture, let there be light, words of illumination. The assumption is darkness. God is breaking apart the darkness with light. We see light in, in this Exodus story of emancipation, though. Exodus 13. Uh, these recently freed people are departing Egypt, and how do they know God is still present? Well, he sends them a nightlight of sorts, right? He becomes, he, or he sends, rather, a pillar of fire that will lead them so that they know that the same hand that delivered them from Pharaoh is right there with them when they're walking on sand and stones. Uh, we also see the theme of light in worship, Exodus 39. You know, later in the book, there are all these details about what the tabernacle should look like. It's like a movable cathedral. Think about, you know, movable cathedral. And inside the movable cathedral, there are all these details about how the candles ought to be set up. Uh, it's almost bizarre as a 21st century reader going back and looking at these texts, but there are all of these details because these burning lamps in the temple are in some way a symbol of God's abiding presence with his people as they meet to worship. He's right there with them. His spirit is right there as they encounter him through sacrifice and praise. But the light comes back again. The light is, is not just about origins and emancipation and worship. It's, it's about written revelation, the text, the Bible. Psalm 119, and you know this one, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's where God is too. And we also see it in the, in the predictions of the Old Testament, the predictions of a better world, of a more just society, of encountering people um, who will not hurt us and we won't hurt them. This is what Isaiah is prophesying, that there's coming a day of great light. And that light will come to people who are sitting in squalor and hellish darkness. There are constellations everywhere of light bursting through the darkness. And Christians have come to believe that this light of God, the illumination, which will eventually take over the canvas, 
is most clearly demonstrated and communicated in its embodied form. The light comes through a person, not just an idea. And this is what St. John writes in John chapter 1. This is his Christmas story where the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. He spends more time talking about light in that passage. He says in verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, speaking of Jesus. And then later says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the ultimate manifestation of the light of God, the purity, the holiness, the righteousness, the health of God is found in Jesus Christ. Why do I give you this little lesson, this journey through time? Uh, this uh, Carl Sagan-esque expression of the Old Testament. It's because when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he tapped into a massive Bible current. He tapped into ancient language, and by claiming to be the light of the world, he was equating himself uh, with the illumination of creation, likening himself to the fire in the wilderness, to the word uh, experienced in, in uh, the text to the one who is worshipped in the temple and to the one prophesied about by the ancient sages, that he was going to be the one to cause the constellations to come into fullest expression and take over the canvas night sky. Uh, and in order to back up or prove such an audacious claim about himself, a claim that Moses never made about himself, Jeremiah never made about himself, Isaiah never spoke about this. He says, I'm the light of the world. And then he heals somebody and makes tangible the light in somebody's eyes, which proves the claim. He gives them a genuine article. One of my favorite movies is from the 1990s, and it's called Leap of Faith, starring Steve Martin. I realize, speaking to the uh, largely youth-oriented audience this morning, that people don't know who Steve Martin is anymore, and it makes me want to cry. Anyway, go rent Leap of Faith and then watch his stand-up. But um, Steve Martin is this, he's an actor who plays a character called Jonas Nightingale. Great name, right? And Jonas Nightingale is a, is a faith healer, but he's a complete fraud. And he goes from town to town trying to rip people off and make money, and he makes a lot of money. But his bus breaks down in this podunk country place, and he has to start, sort of set up his revival tent and see what he can uh, rake in uh, from the rubes. And sort of an odd twist of fate, uh, he becomes friends with this young teenage boy uh, whose legs were smashed because he was hit by a drunk driver. His parents died and his legs were destroyed, and he can only hobble around on crutches. And, uh, and he's gone to faith healers, and not, nobody's been able to make him well. And he, but he's very devout, and he really prays, and he believes that God has this magnificent uh, future for him. Uh, and, and on the last night of the revival, this this young man, has the courage to go up front to get prayer, but Steve Martin's character um, tries to block him from you know, having access, because you don't want people like that up front. You want the people who are going to lie and act like they're healed for some money. They can be up front, but not the people that are really sick. Then he hobbles up front, and he somehow moves past the choir and moves past a Jonas Nightingale, and he looks straight up at the cross, which is in the front of the revival tent, and there's a corpus on the cross, the body of Christ, and he looks at 
Christ in the eyes, and he reaches out his hands, and his crutches fall away, and he grabs the feet of the statue. And you can tell he's praying. I mean, he wants to have some sort of uh, connection with God, one that will make his life better. And then to everybody's shock and amazement, he's healed. He's completely healed. And Jonas Nightingale doesn't know what to do. So instead of rejoicing with the crowd, he leaves in a fury, slams his dressing room door, and later this boy, who now can walk, goes to him and says, I want to go with you. When you go to the next town, I want to go too, and I want to show everybody you know, what prayer can do. And for the first time in his life, Jonas is honest, and he sort of bursts into a rant, and he, and he confesses. He says, look, kid, I, I, I run a scam here. It's a lot of smoke and mirrors, and it's strictly for the suckers. You know, I've been pulling one scam after another since I was your age, and let me tell you something. You are the one thing that will cause the scam to come to a screeching halt. I know when I'm dealing with the genuine article. I'm not worried about the cops. You can always get around the cops. But the one thing you can never, ever get around is the genuine article. And you, kid, are the genuine article. It later causes him to leave this snake oil salesman ministry and for Jonas to really be converted. It's a profoundly Christian movie without being a dopey Christian movie. You know. This is what Jesus is doing. He is putting before his audience the genuine article. It's unarguable, though they try to argue, right? But at the end of the day, it's unarguable. The man couldn't see from birth, never saw a sunset, doesn't understand the concept of color, couldn't recognize his parents in a room of five people. But now he can see, which is evidence that Jesus is really light of the world. And what I find fascinating is that this healing causes two reactions, not one. I would think it would just cause one reaction. That is, people would be happy. This man who has suffered all his life and has had to beg and scrape no longer has to. Well, that's good. And that's an amazing thing. We, that's never happened before. But they're not happy. At least most of the people in the story aren't happy. There are two divergent reactions to, to the illumination of, uh, of Jesus. And they are blindness and sight. Blindness and sight. It's, it's ironic. John 9 is filled with irony. You know, it's the blind man who begins to see, and those who have 20-20 vision who become blind as bats. We'll talk about sight, you know. In John 9, the blind man experiences not just like a physical sight, which is wonderful, but he, he experiences a soulish perception that, that is unshared by the mob. He begins to see God. He sees God. We, we see this building in the passage. Um, first, he regards Jesus as important, important enough to listen to. So he, he washes his eyes, just like he was told. Moreover, he regards Jesus as significant, not just significant, but as significant as the Old Testament prophets. He says he's a prophet, verse 17. Later, when, when he's when people are pushing back against his, his budding belief in Christ, he says that Jesus has to have a divine origin. You know, 
never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In other words, he was from God. God is his source. But then he goes even further. After he's been cast out of the temple, he believes and worships. Verse 36, Jesus said to the formerly blind man, isn't this beautiful? Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he? Who is he that I might believe? Jesus said to him, you are seeing him. It is he who is speaking to you. And then the man says, Lord, I believe, and he worships Jesus. So we see this, this sight budding in this man. This man sees with his eyes and his heart and concludes that this is God from God, light from light. True God from true God, begotten, not made. There is something eternal about this experience. This is not Moses. Something more than Moses is here. So he worships. He starts to see. Everybody else becomes blind. This can be said um, of the disciples as well, who want to identify this man as a sinner at the beginning. Um, It can also be seen in his parents' engagement with the Pharisees, but it's especially true of the Pharisees, displayed in them this soulish astigmatism where their vision is blurred and they won't see and they can't see. In fact, they have an inverted vision. They see God as vice, as sin. This astigmatism grows as the interactions roll on. First of all, they think Jesus is is disrespectful of tradition. Verse 16, they accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath because he made mud. Okay, there is nothing in the Old Testament that says you can't make mud on the Sabbath, right? Okay, but there are are like uh, traditions that are like a cocoon around the law that seek to protect it that were invented by the rabbinic scholars and Pharisees. And so they they think he's disrespectful. Um, They also think he's a heretic, that he's a wanderer from the tribe. In verse 17, they say, well, we're Moses' disciples, but we don't even know where he's from. In other words, he's not a follower of Moses. If he were a follower of Moses, he'd be a follower of our traditions and a follower of of our Sabbath regulations, but he's not. So he's not part of our crew. And we're the people who really understand this religion. Who's he? Some apostate running around? They also disconnect Jesus from God. When they, can't, when they can no longer say this man is a fake, when they have to conclude there was a miracle, they tell him, give glory to God because he's a fraud. It's God who healed you, not the apostate. Right? And then in the same verse, they call Jesus a sinner. So he's immoral. So he's departed tradition. He's a heretic. He's disconnected from the tribe. He's immoral. And then lastly, they excommunicate the, the man who has, who has sight. They say, you're just like him. You're born in utter sin, to hell with him, and to hell with you. Get out. This is what they do. Um, they cast him out. And you notice how Jesus responds? It's fascinating. He stands against the hierarchy and with the excommunicate. He, and he offers these very stark words to the elite around him. He says to them, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who say that they see may become blind. The Pharisees became blind in two different ways. First, they were blind to their inner night. I mean, they were just dying inside. Carcasses, Jesus calls them. 
buried under this cathedral facade, you know, but inside they were, they were mean, they were cruel, they had no compassion, they would rip people off, they used religion to get money, according to Jesus. I mean, th- these are frauds. So they were blind to their inner night. They were also blind to the outward light that was coming to them. They did not recognize God at the time of his coming. They couldn't see. They thought the light was darkness, and their darkness was light. They had an astigmatism that completely destroyed their vision. Um, They were blind to the sun. And so this is our story, this wonderful miracle which supports Jesus' claim to be the light of the world and the divergent reactions that it causes. One man begins to truly see, and the others become more blind. And that's it. And we could just say, well, that was a nice story, and then move on with our day. But what about you? And what about me? And what about us? And, and what about our relationship to the light? What about that? I think, I think we can have you know, a positive relationship with the light. I think it involves two things. It involves receiving the light and offering the light. But you can't offer what you don't have. So you need to receive the light, and then you have something to give. And let me say something about both. Receiving the light, how on earth do you do that? I mean, how do you have a lack of spiritual astigmatism? How do you see clearly on blinded sight? Well, Jesus gives us a hint in verse 41. This is what he says. It's parabolic language, but the point gets through. If you were blind... You would have no guilt. But because you say we see, your guilt remains. Um, Seeing God happens, according to Jesus, in a very topsy-turvy manner. We begin to understand and see God rightly, not by claiming expertise that we see, but by professing ignorance a soulish lack of sight. This is why we gather tonight. We don't gather tonight um, to celebrate how right we are and how everybody on the outside are morons. You know, we've got it, they don't, amen. That's ridiculous uh, and deeply egotistical. Um, we don't come to church to celebrate that. We come to church to realize it's a very bold thing. You know, if you're really encountering Christianity for what it is, it's bold to come here and say, I might have some things like wrong. Not just things that are indifferent, like m- the part in my hair, well, um, or, uh, or like my diet, or like what you know, child-rearing technique I'm using. That's, maybe that's important. But I might have like really substantial aspects of my life that are wrong, and I can't even see it. And so we, we come here um, to recognize that and to have our self-concept and our God-concept redefined by Jesus Christ. We come here for redefinition. We come here to rethink some things, reconsider some things. Um, and, and, and not to, the Book of Common Prayer puts it beautifully, we don't cloak ourselves before the face of God, but we expose ourselves for what we are, and that's where we're met. And receiving the light is therefore a very bold thing to do. It's the only way to see is to admit your lack of sight. If you do that when you come to church, it will make a world of difference. But then there's also offering light. 
See, what happens in Christian experience, it's a miracle that we call regeneration, but this is how it works. The light which comes to you doesn't just stay objective to you. It begins to uh, uh, become resident in you. The light from outside works its way inside, and it starts being reflected by you, that the very goodness and wholeness and and all of the the goodness of God is channeled uh, through you into the world. This is why the same Jesus who said, I am the light of the world, can say to his own disciples, you are the light of the world. Now, our being the light of the world always hinges upon or is dependent upon him being light of the world, but it means that you have been given this same energizing um, force that can spill out from you. When people encounter you after you've been morphed by Jesus and you become a, a vessel for light, a reflector of light, They're not just encountering you, they're encountering the God behind you. They're encountering Jesus through you. And that has a life-altering effect. Uh, There was this story told of um, five salesmen who rode a bus to a convention in Milwaukee, and they promised their spouses that they would be home in time for dinner. And so they had to rush to get to the bus depot. And one of the salesmen inadvertently um, tripped over, and therefore tipped over, a table that... um, had a display of fruit, and it all fell on the ground, and apples and plums were rolling everywhere, and, but they all kept running, and they made the bus, but one of them had a twinge of guilt and thought, well, that isn't right. So he went back, and he, was, um, he put the table up, and he, and he was gathering the fruit together and putting all of the bruised fruit in a basket, and then he noticed that the vendor who was selling was this kid, this 11-year-old girl, who was blind panicking. And when he saw this, he said, I put all the bruised fruit in this basket here, and and here's $50. I'm sorry about all this, and I hope I haven't spoiled your day. God bless. And he walked away, and as he was walking away to the bus, he heard a voice from behind him saying, are you Jesus? Because the same light that energized Jesus and the same light that flowed from Jesus was the light that was flowing from him in that moment. And so you have tremendous value and importance because through you and your new heart can can come a constellation of glory which can lead people back to God. Whenever we are filled with light, people see the one who illuminates the world And when light lives in you, you know what happens? We begin to take the lamps back to Harmony, Pennsylvania, and and we begin to turn the lights on again. And places that were desolate become home. I remember the morning that I awoke from my terrible dream. I woke very suddenly because I saw the sun and was shocked that it was still in the sky. And I, I started to scream in my room. I said, the sun is back! The sun is back! And my mother runs to the room and says, what, what's wrong with you? I said, well, the sun's back! And she, yeah, what's well, morning? And she didn't understand. It's okay. But it was back, you know. And one day, friends, we who are carrying our candles in the wind will say the same thing because the sun will be back and long live the light. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.